Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today, a conversation with Buffalo Tom frontman and author Bill Janovitz. On the eve of Buffalo Tom's terrific new release, Quiet and Peace, we talk about coming up in the fertile Boston scene of the late 80s and early 90s, what it's like to be huge in the Benelux countries, writing books about the Rolling Stones, and modern architecture in colonial neighborhoods. So enjoy a conversation with Bill Janovitz. Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my brother, Jeremy Sartori. So it is a Brother, Brother podcast today, and we are joined by Bill Janovitz, noted uh, musician and author. So welcome. Thank you very much. Um, I was going to say, I've, I've, been, uh, I've been reading a lot about you through your books about the Rolling Stones, but walk us basically through your musical life. How did you get into it originally, and, and um, you know, was the family, what, what, what kinds of things t- took you into the heart of rock and roll? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting to talk to this, in this context of brothers and uh, brothers influencing, uh, siblings influencing each other, and I was the oldest of five, and I probably had that, well, I know I had that effect on my... Uh, my younger brothers and, and sister to some extent. Uh, but uh, ha- the oldest of five, my parents were into music, but they were they were on that dividing line. You know, if you look at Mad Men and you see, like, there was the hippie brother and then, you know, the, <laughs> the, you know, the, the conservative brother or sister, you know. And they, were, they each had younger siblings, and, and they were each on that sort of 60s, traditional 60s, whereas my parents were more like conservative Kennedy type, uh, you know, suit and tie accountant. And your, your parents were busy clubbing hippies at the Chicago Convention. They just missed it, and they were really into even the 50s music that they were into tended to be romantic 50s music. And my dad was a, a singer. Crooners. Yeah, yeah, but really into like my dad was really into vocal quartets and like the Mills Brothers, Ink Spots, Platters. And mm. stuff that came out of that, so pre and post doo-wop. And he sang in one of those himself called The Fabulaires. And there's something on my on my website somewhere where you can you can listen to the acetate that they made in the Brill building where oh, cool. Tommy James and the Chandelles recorded their demos and stuff. And uh, so but he was way too pragmatic, you know, post war Catholic, mm-hmm. gonna gonna start a family and settle down to, to, to kind of pursue it seriously, yeah. you know. But he's a really good singer. Um, so he turned me on and it just my my siblings all say the same thing. Just hearing him tap, on, you know, his ring and listen, and sing harmony in the car to the radio was as influential to me as as somebody in a band maybe would be. But so they we had Elvis records and things like that around the house and um, the Ink Spots and my dad had really eclectic, small but very eclectic guitar um, uh, record collection. So we had like Charlie Bird, Bossa Nova. We had this, we had that. It was very 60s and 70s. And then the 8-track tapes came, and my mom got, like, the Carpenters and mm-hmm. more Elvis and John Denver. Some and Ray Conniff like singers. And yeah, a little bit. They weren't so much, although my dad really would listen to that crap on the radio, easy yeah. listening stuff, you know. And we used to make fun of them uh, for the elevator music. But, yeah. So then you, you as I you know, as I mentioned before, you've, you've written two books on the Stones, and in both cases you talk about receiving uh, Stones records for Christmas. So yeah, like, so it was really, real, it was not so much with my parents, although, you know, it was like as a kid, it was all whatever's on the radio, Jackson 5, Beatles. Stones were on the radio to some extent, of course, as well, but talk about like 70, 71. And then, yeah, maybe being seven or eight years old, some neighbors uh, in my own next-door neighbors uh, were throwing out of, like, a rope of 45s, which was mostly sort of mid-60s British invasion and folk rock stuff. We talked about the birds before we came on and stuff like that. And then, But my uh, grandparents had these next-door neighbors that were a little older and gave me, I don't know why they were getting rid of them, but they gave me, like, Highway 61 Revisited and Out of Our Heads by the Stones and Wild Honey by the Beach Boys. And these are records that I still, to this day, cherish, you know, in my collection. And that stuff was really influential, like... Diving deep, those are the first albums I really owned, you know, of my own. And d- diving into those weird, dark records, those are very enigmatic records, all three of those I mm-hmm. mentioned, you know. Um, Wild Honey's a weird Beach Boys record, but particularly The Stones and, and Dylan. And that really set me off on the path that I've stayed on, like finding these weird uh, records that aren't necessarily broadly 
I mean, that had satisfaction on it, for example. Mm, right. I mean, you know, it wasn't like you, you, nobody else can really name the other songs on the record unless you're a Deep Stones fan. Um, yeah, and then, you know, then I started buying records myself, and I think, like, the first albums I bought were, like, Songs in the Key of Life and Sgt. Peppers and White Album and Stones, records like that. So. This is out in Long Island. Yeah, Huntington, Long Island. Uh, great town with great record stores, like four or five record stores and within a block or two. You know? Yeah, this is back actually when New York, I mean, I know from having lived outside New York, you know, New York's radio went into decline, but it, back in the 70s, 80s, it was pretty pretty solid. I mean... It was great. It was, um, it was you know, you had LIR, mm-hmm. uh, which was playing kind of more country rock and southern rock in the 70s, but, uh, you know, Graham Parsons was there. Van Morrison made some appearances on that. Um, but then they became more cutting edge when sort of post-punk... But PLJ, WPLJ mm-hmm. was playing, and w- NEW were playing. So we were, you know, I mean, certainly the singer-songwriters like Patti Smith and Elvis Costello and, and Lou Reed's mm-hmm. solo Young stuff. Upstart with Bruce Springsteen. Springsteen. Yeah, yeah. I kind of grouped all that stuff together. So Springsteen, to me, was sort of in that realm. Graham Parker, yeah. you know, it's, and it all had was, a certain swing to it. Well, it was, we were talking about this on multiple occasions where, you know, things that were, you know, Things were classified as new wave after a yeah, while. Yeah, like Tom Petty was Tom new wave. Right. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Tom yeah. Petty, Joan Jett. It was marketing uh, angles. Yeah. You know, Marshall Crenshaw were all new right. wave. Right, right, right. You know, right. which is kind of strange. Yeah. So didn't have the same designations that, that they have now. But Did you um, start playing guitar then, or did you know that that was... Yeah, so I started playing trumpet early on as a kid. You know, the first thing you can get in school was an, you know, a band right. instrument, and I kind of really took that pretty far. I was really into it. I was really good at it, and... So I had a capacity for music, and I didn't really, I don't know, for some reason I just didn't think, yeah, i got to have a guitar, Mom and Dad, until my mother got me one for Christmas. And I really, it was like literally like, okay, trumpet's not cool anymore, I'm going to learn guitar. And there was a really great teacher down in the music store in the, in the, in the, in the village, in Huntington Village, who was basically like, what do you want to learn? And I was like, I just want to learn how to play these songs. So, okay, let's put the songs on, and I'll teach you Can't You See by Marshall Tucker. You that's know? great. <laughs> so I kind of went right in. That's, and that's the way you, you really should learn guitar if you if you want to play pop or rock right. guitar. Mm-hmm. It's not going through the scales necessarily right away, but helpful later, you know. But like learning songs, so yeah. yeah. And formed a band pretty soon after that. I was going to ask, dude, yeah. what was the first band? So the first, first band was called Two Hundred Proof. We were like thirteen year old boys that didn't know quite what that meant. Uh, it's but yeah, a badass a, name. Yeah, badass name. Like we were, we were the the whiskey bottles would have been taller than we were. Uh, just like <laughs> like lightweight guys. Uh, I don't think any of us were singing yet, but we were just kind of jamming bass, guitar, vocals. But that eventually morphed into more of a band. We were taking people on. And that was kind of this. There was always a thread of that same band that kind of stayed together. It was like it was never. It's never like I left one band and started another. It was like kind of until I left Huntington at sixteen or so. Uh, that was sort of the same th- sort of through line band that I was mm-hmm. in. And then did you change names? Of course. Did you have a, a band when you came to Massachusetts, or was it not till you? No, guys? it was tough. I mean, that was really hard. So, you know, a lot of everybody goes through leaving their hometown eventually. Most people don't go through it until you're in high school. You guys were kind of transient as well. Or nomads. Know? Yeah. Nomads. yeah. Like beyond. Yes, transient. Learn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, there was a big lesson, you know, uh, leaving a band behind, leaving sort of a, you know. Puppy Love, First Crush, and all these great... And then coming to this rinky-dink little town. Beautiful, but rinky-dink little town. By the way, great fuel for songwriting. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Getting your heart crushed and your dreams crushed on the same day. Exactly, and having to meet new people. And hating your parents at the same time. Yeah, hating your parents and going through true, you know, should have been kind of in therapy, depression kind of stuff, you know. And Yeah, that's probably where all my songs come from. (laughs) So then you go to UMass, and it sounds like Buffalo Tom came out pretty, I mean, came pretty soon after you went to UMass. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it on paper, it does. But I mean, for those two years, three years, I mean, 82 to 86, I didn't really have. I had a band uh, that included my brother and some some kids from our neighborhood, but it wasn't like we didn't do anything. It was Mm -hmm. just playing parties or... And I had, you know, and I started writing silly songs in high school. But, you know, that was... It was a, it was good to have somebody, but I mean, but by the time I went to college, all everybody else was sort of all over the place, and I was just happy to sit in with like Chris Colburn's band. Like, so Chris had a similar trajectory where he went from like Buffalo to Huntington to, to Medfield, but he was like eight or nine when he moved to Medfield. But I didn't know him because he was two years ahead of me, so I didn't know him until I went to school and met him through all the other Medfield kids. And Tom, I think I might have even met Tom before I met Chris. He was from Andover, and when I was in high school, the, the older kids that went to UMass. You know, I'd go visit them when I was still in high school, and they came back for like winter break, and I went up and saw Tom in his parents' basement playing with his band with, that he was in with his cousin, and his cousin named Phil Rattel 
was an amazing presence, wrote his own really good songs. We were just talking about this two days ago, uh, and had a real presence, a charismatic singer, uh, sounded sort of like Bowie, had a kind of big, booming voice, and a very unique style of playing guitar. So watching them sort of made me realize, like, oh, this could be, you know, they were already oh, playing, like, Jumpin' Jack Flash in Boston, mm-hmm. yeah. or the Out- Outlets, and all these other bands. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, these guys... Make it, are making a run of it. Yeah, you can kind of go, this is where I'm old enough to be in clubs now, and I can not only just sneak in, I kind of start getting in, blah, blah, blah. So I knew I wanted to sort of be in a band with those guys. Um, Chris was playing with this band up at UMass. It's more of a party band. So I would sit in. So yeah, then Dinosaur Jr. were sort of sh- showing up mm-hmm. and starting to do things. So yeah, we formed Buffalo Town in 86. It was my junior year, actually. So, um, But soon after that, like within a, within a year and a half, two years, we were sort of getting a... By the time I got out of college, we already had kind of a little record deal. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like... Well, yeah. walk us through that, because, uh, you know, one of the things... This is a, a curie, you know... Uh, Bill and I wound up going to the same university around the same time. So, um, you know, I remember being at UMass and uh, Dinosaur was, you know, getting, they sort of, you sort of knew immediately that they were going to do something bigger mm. because they were so different and mm. interesting. So, like, did were you friendly with Jay before or was it through the, you know, through the opening for them or what? Yeah, I mean, Jay is, Jay was, I mean, Jay is such a enigma now, but you can imagine even back then he was even more taciturn, if, if you can kind of believe it. And he's become this kind of icon. Um, and But I, I kind of recognized, I think everybody did, he, he had a certain, he had this sort of birthday party Nick Cave look going on. And, and But there were a lot of cool kids like that. I mean, not a lot. No, but I, they, I remember. I remember seeing yeah, him. Yeah, and he was a scrawny sort of, you know, guy with love beads on. And... Uh, but um, and I think by the yeah, time I got Charlie her, Nakamura. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Charlie was pretty intimidating to me. <laughs> but um, my friend uh, from Medfield, actually, Jay Tallerman, who's, a, who's an attorney now, but he, he's a, he was a photographer, and he took the pictures on their first album, that are on their first okay. album, like of The Sun, uh, yeah. Arthur and The Sun there. So so he introduced me to Jay, and I, this is before Buffalo Tommy was story, so that record was coming out or came out, that first album. And then by the time, let me... Um, you live me, you're living all over me. I'm mixing it up with my yeah. own album. You're living all over me. Came out, I was like, this is... I, the first album was really interesting to me. And yeah. I, I kind of liked it, but the second album just blew my mind. Yeah, everybody's, everybody's mind. Everybody's mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was the, the, that was right when I got to school there. So yeah. it was sort of like, this is the hometown team. I mean, the, the Pixies, as much as they're attributed they were, to UMass, they were never they really were in a band. presence there. And, yeah. and the guys in Dinosaur actually lived in Amherst, were from there. And, yeah. and that was kind of the hometown team. Yeah, so Joey and, and, and Charles apparently were at UMass, but I didn't know them. Uh, and I saw them when they first came back to play at Sheehan's at mm-hmm. the basement downstairs at Sheehan's in Northampton. There might have been there might have been seventy five people there at yeah. Max. You know, it, was, it couldn't even hold. That was a quality establishment. It was great. Yeah, I've seen. I saw Flaming Lips there. I saw some great bands. Yeah, there. they're actually. And then the. I mean, just as an, a quick aside, uh, just for you know, fun fact, uh, Dinosaur Junior was not allowed to play in Northampton or Amherst after a while because they were too loud. And yeah. They wind up having to play at Katina's in Hadley, which was a split level ranch with a snake. In a glass Snake case bit. under the we played floor. We played, a ba- we played a, a battle of the bands there. It was like our first gig. Yeah. Know, uh, with the, yeah. the snake pit, you couldn't really see the snakes because it was plexiglass and it was all scratched up. Yeah. It's not a selling point for me. I'm petrified. Yeah. That was a real roadhouse establishment. It really was. was. Kind I saw of, meat mostly thing. metal. Yeah. Actually, Foghat played there. I remember yeah. they, had, they had their white stretch limo out. You know, <laughs> Katinas, you know, bigger than the joint itself. You know? It was, a, like you said, a quality stuff. I did see Meatloaf and Dr. Hook. There, yeah, yeah. No, Jay, Jay, Jay uh, played so, and still does play. So, but he was playing basically the same arena volume uh, in in these small. And she ends. Yeah. yeah, there was a place. Do you remember Loasis in Northampton? It was a little place under the Thorns Marketplace. Yeah. It had mirrors, and I saw them playing there, and a mirror fell off the wall and shat like a huge plate glass <laughs> mirror. And he would make people cr- like Salmon cry, and Salmon would come up to him and say, "You can't, you can't." And he would just have a blank look on his face, and they would be like, "You can't do this. You can't do this." And he'd be like, "Just basically, it was the it was the biggest fuck you have ever seen anybody do because you just wouldn't he wouldn't react at all." Yeah. And they would walk away, and he would just keep playing. No, he left a lot of people frustrated. And, and <laughs> we all got talking to him. Yeah. You know, I, I it was funny. I remember somebody saying when we started the podcast, "Oh, you should you should grab Jay Maskus. And I was like, "I love 
Dinosaur Jr. I don't want to have a forty-five minute conversation. <laughs> he's good though in an interview. If you get, I mean, he, he's he was on uh, Marin's podcast, mm-hmm. and uh, he, he's he's good. He's he's if you engage him on on, he's not gonna he doesn't suffer fools, and he doesn't really go along with uh, conversational. He's fine with you know just sort of pauses. <laughs> yeah, no, I was, I'm still scarred from the you know from the conversations I attempted when I was you know, nineteen. Yeah. So. No, he's got a funny sense of humor. So that's yeah. what uh, people yeah. used to ask us like when we started working with him. I was like, well, what's he like? I'm like, he's the he's one of the biggest goofballs I've ever hung yeah. out with. You know, a really funny guy. It's the Belichick syndrome, really. Sort of, yeah. It's sort of like you doesn't know, care if tells you, me doesn't care if you're funny. Yeah, yeah. Not Heart seeing a lot of science yeah. 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 yeah, but uh, so did they? So they kind of. Um, did they help you get signed then, or was that, or were you, you were no. affiliated somehow? Yeah, so, um, yeah, yeah, so You're Living All Alone, we came out around the same time we were forming the band, and uh, I, I sort of remember borrowing some drums from Jay, but um, Tom says, no, we borrowed drums from somebody else, but, I mean, we definitely jammed with Jay a couple of times, and in fact, um, uh, he would often sit in on drums, because Tom was sometimes not at school, he would took a semester away, he was living up here with his other band, so stuff like that. It was all that kind of cloudy memory stuff. But yeah, Jay, um, you know, we were, we were friends and fans, so there was obviously that kind of thing. But when we first, the first label we actually signed with was a Dutch label called Megadisc, and it, they had put out this record by the Gun Club, which mm-hmm. was like mm-hmm. Chris and I were really into yeah, the I Gun love Club. Them. Yeah, and we'd go see them all the time. So we sent, you know, we made these demos and on cassettes, and we went around to all our labels, our, all our records, and found out where to send these, uh, you know, where their addresses were. And one was <laughs> Wiespallen, Wiespallen. And uh, so we sat and they, were, they got back to us and said, we'd love to put out a record by you guys. And, you know, they wanted everything. They wanted all the rights to everything <laughs> for no money. And we said, sure, that sounds That's great. Uh, and around that time, um, so we, made it, we started making that first record in bits and spurts. Like, stopped making demos and started making the actual recordings kind of all... Whenever we can kind of get away from you, man. Did you record that in Boston? Yeah, Fort Apache. Fort Apache. Yeah, the first Fort Apache. In different like months, you know, like we would go for a long weekend, Mm -hmm. and we started working with Tim O'Hare there, um, uh, who who actually uh, was actually played a little bit in Tom McGinnis's other band, the one with his cousin. So it was all this kind of stuff, and and that was very influential going there. We can talk about that as much as you want, but. Um, then Jay kind of came in sort of midway during the sessions to kind of help just sit in and be, it just seemed natural to have yeah. him around. And, and he was great with that. Kind of, so around that time, SST got interested because of Jay, I think, probably primarily, but also, I guess, hopefully they liked the music. And we already had this Dutch deal, so it was a kind of more of a licensed in the U.S. deal thing or a separate deal in the States, kind of, you know, inside baseball stuff that's not that interesting. But, yeah, we met Greg Ginn, who I was also a fan of, you know, Black Flag. Uh, in New York around CMJ before that record came out. So it kind of was an evolution. Mm-hmm. And were you song, I mean, being primary songwriter, had you kind of, all of that was original material. So when Buffalo Tom, were you guys ever doing covers or anything? Or did you kind of start off yeah. writing music and being the... No, we first started, uh, and I became the singer because and guitar player because I had the songs. Right. And so you were already writing. And yeah, then, and Chris was playing guitar in his yeah. other band, but he wasn't really writing. And he didn't really start writing much until, um, you know, his own songs, until, like, the second record. In fact, Tom brought in the chord sequence for one of the songs on the first record called The Plank. So we were just... None of us knew what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, we were all really into... We had a, a Venn diagram of overlapping influences, and we'd see each other at all these shows, which is why we formed the band. So that's why, um, you know... And Chris... Wanted to, Chris didn't necessarily want to play bass, but Tom was the more natural drummer because he had been fooled around on drums. Yeah. And, and So he wanted to learn how to play drums, and Chris was like, sure. So Chris really started playing bass like a guitar, just mm-hmm. strumming like Lou, you yeah, know, yeah, like, and, and who were obviously yeah. influences as well. Um, but yeah, we had played a lot of covers. You know, I didn't have that many songs. In fact, like, one of the first songs is Impossible is, like, something I wrote when I was 17 or 18 okay. years old, like, still in high school, you know. Um, so yeah, but then that's probably also why it took a little while to kind of make that record. Maybe we were just still writing the songs. I don't really have much of a memory of it. Because yeah, because on paper it looks like it all happened very quickly. And and I know from you know, um, from being in the area and and you know, you're you, the run up to becoming 
a, a pretty significant band in this area and then, you know, sort of nationally. Um, it looked like it came pretty quickly. Um, mm. There wasn't a whole lot of, uh, you know, there wasn't three albums before people started hearing it, but your albums were getting played on the radio mm. right from go. Yeah, I mean, relatively. Uh, I mean, you I know. FNX, Buffalo Tom early on. Off the yeah, first album it, and it took a little. I mean, we we were begging. Even when our first record came out in mm-hmm. the States, we were still begging to be on show. I mean, that's how yeah. competitive Boston was. Yeah. Like, I posted some picture recently of um, of a flyer from TT's or an ad from TT's, and it was like, Galaxy 500, uh, you know, Volcano Suns. And these were all yeah, great. nationally yeah. signed bands. You Bola know, La Volta. La Volta, Lemonheads. Uh, Blake Babies were sort of yeah. coming out around that time, but there were also all these very strong local bands. I mean, never mind the Delphigos and Neighborhoods and yeah. Titanics. I mean, bands that really had draw. Moving Targets were maybe one of the biggest influences yeah. on Buffalo Tom. Like we were all deeply into those records when and when that and. And that was coming, Burning burning Water was coming out at like the same time that we were forming the band. Well, that's, that's one of the things I really wanted to talk about, and this is sort of part two of, of the, you know, sort of jumping off question. But, you know, so you you leave Amherst, come to Boston with the band. Yeah, so I was the youngest. Um, I, I still am, I like to point out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so those guys sort of... It's a competitive... Chris sort of hung around. I, I hung around the area a little bit more because my... my girlfriend then now wife uh, was she was a year behind me so I stayed an extra semester anyway and then stayed a semester after that just to hang out and work the other guy so yeah we were starting to play coming back and forth to Boston and and, and friends in New York had gigs we would try to get on those bills but so our record came out in 88 in Europe but I think it came out in 89 a little bit later maybe in the states uh, that first album so we actually were touring we were playing big sh- festival show yeah. uh, in in Belgium before we played uh, right before we could headline in Boston. Yeah, well, that's what that's what I was gonna say. I mean, there was a, yeah. there was a very very fruitful time for Boston. Um, there was a lot of great bands, a lot yeah. of great venues, um, and then uh, you know, but it, like I said, from the outside looking in, it looked like you guys were able to jump right in and, and have this be your job as opposed to, you know, sort of day jobs and working. You know, oh, that's not true, no. But, <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. From yeah. the outside looking yeah, in, let's yeah, say, yeah. you know. But it, what, at what point were you able to say, like, okay, well, this is, this is what I'm going to do for a while? Um, well, it, it took three records for us to feel, and maybe this has come from our bourgeois backgrounds, you know, we're very, we're very pragmatic. We didn't all want to live in one room together mm-hmm. and and then stay on the on the road. We we would we would have killed each other. <laughs> we would almost kill each that's other. That's the secret to success. You know? yeah. yeah, so we balanced it a little bit. So we continued to work. And Chris started the job that he now he owns the place where he started when he got out of college, which is a booking agency called Concerted Concerted Efforts. I and mean, he came right out of college as an uh, working for this agency. And now he's one of the three partners that, that owns it. So he never wanted to give up his mm-hmm. day job. He loved it. And I just took a shitty co- copy store down an ally of Pip Printing because that was the flexibility. I didn't care if he took me back or not. But it was the curse. He kept wanting to take me back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Tom was doing like sort of cable access type stuff. We were all living in Somerville. and um, But we were, we were, we were, we were, of course, I mean, you, we never thought we would have more than one tour. And you never knew, you know, we never counted on it. But we had early support, you know, I mean, to point, you know, FNX certainly and BCN on their on their specialty Sunday night shows. But also like MBR was and ERS were really important college stations that really supported us. John Bernhardt in particular and, and Ann Stein, who was or Ann Slynn. Um, there's they were great early supporters, uh, Alberto. And but they were and they were playing and Billy Ruane. So on the live yeah. side, Billy Ruane was giving us shows at the Middle East when that was just starting. But TT's and The Rat and The Channel, I mean, we, we eventually played there, but it seemed like it really took us a couple of years. To it didn't up. take that long. But, yeah. then, so, but then you made a jump, pretty, you know, a pretty significant jump in the early 90s. I guess it, it kind of is, you know, like everything in, in American music, and particularly in, in this, uh, for this you know, sort of level of band, there is the pre-Nirvana, post-Nirvana, you know, there was the Feeding Frenzy. Yeah. And that, you know, that was when you guys got kicked up to a... a yeah, so it was interesting. So we were always on beggars pretty much until the until the end of the '90s. So I, I shouldn't say always. So we started on on Megadisc with that one record uh, on SST. Then from Bird Brain on, Beggars Banquet took over, and Megadisc was still involved as like sort of a pop label, and we paid them a certain percentage. But now we were Beggars artists, mm-hmm. and Beggars in turn had different licensing deals almost every year with a different major label. So at, when Let Me Come Over, our third album came out, 
by then we were we had established ourselves in Europe pretty well, and we had even gotten around the states a couple of times, and people were knowing us. But the states was still really tough because there was no real. The only national exposure was um, on MTV, like Cutting Edge and 120 yeah. Minutes. Yeah. And, you know, we'd go to Iowa or wherever, and that's how the kids knew us. They didn't have college radio necessarily. Well, Iowa City would, but maybe, you know, the middle of nowhere, down south. So, you know, you're doing a lot of colleges and stuff like that. Um, but by that third record, we were starting to make a living. As long as we stayed on the road, it wasn't like record sales were paying anything, you know, T-shirts and... and, and but it was still just, you know, 600 bucks a month for a Somerville apartment or something. Yeah, it wasn't right. crazy. So, But then, yeah, let me come over... That was a two-tiered thing. It's like, well, do we kick this up to um, to RCA, which was, you know, there was like a BMG RCA deal, and it really was a minor major league thing, and it started to get its legs really sort of mid to late in that record into '92. We had we had toured with almost no support; hardly anybody was showing up on "Let Me Come Over" in the states. In the in Europe, it was really kind of a big deal, mm-hmm. but it wasn't like you know we were playing the town and country and stuff. It was. You know, in, 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 in London, it was a big deal. It was like, you know, a thousand people on our own and stuff like that. But in Holland, of course, and Belgium were big for us as well. Um, but yeah, in the States, we did. The, we finished that year, I think, uh, that Let Me Come Over tour by opening up for My Bloody Valentine. Like, we scrapped the rest of our tour dates to go take their Loveless uh, nice. opening thing with Yola Tango. And so you, I'm, it's, I'm shocked to know that you still have hearing. <laughs> no, I, it's it's constant tinnitus. Yeah, is it? Yeah, I'll yeah. Touring touring mates with uh, with Dino and Dinosaur Jr. Like, small clubs maybe. alone was probably yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, we were allowed ourselves. But anyway, yeah. So I remember around that time. That's when all that stuff started to happen, and Nevermind broke, and it really did become a different thing. So it really was like a. I kind of I'm not sure if I misremember it, but I remember sort of sitting down and talking to like our beggars guys and saying, "Well, you know." Uh, WNEW is spinning it's not official uh, rotation but they're spinning Taillights Fade and MTV is playing it but it's not in Buzzbin yet or whatever those things mm-hmm. were you know I remember them well <laughs> so it's like do they kick in more money and, and try to keep that record going or do we kind of say let's do the next record next and we one. said let's go do the next record you know because we're not going to keep touring this record let's so and then by then by the time we got out to LA to record our fourth album Everything had changed, yeah. and then it was like big stakes. You know? Were you at Sunset Sound out there? Or? No, we went to Cherokee Studios, which is a that's a that's a that's a podcast worth of <laughs> stories alone. <laughs> you know, with these guys, the Rob Brothers, um, it's like a four studio, three studio complex uh, on Fairfax. Um, it's still there. It's kind of like a condo place, but it used to be the old Sinatra MGM studio. I think he owned it for a while. Uh, but those guys had crazy stories, and while we were there, it was like Rick James and Lita Ford and uh, <laughs> Ice Cube and Hank Shockley and I had lunch together once. And it was, and in one day alone, um, uh, while we were mixing "I Am Allowed," uh, Gene Simmons and Skunk Baxter and um, and um, who was the third person that came in that day? Uh, oh, David Lynch all came in and listened, <laughs> listened to the mixing of that Sounds record. Like Lynch, yeah, yeah, different yeah. times. It was like a surreal talk show. I had a question just in general. I mean, back then, so you were mentioning some of the outlets like Buzzbin, obviously College Radio. Yeah. I'm, you know, 10 years younger than when. So, I mean, that's certainly where I heard you guys. I mean, I, you know, obviously Boston, independent radio, I was into music pretty young via him. But, you know, I always felt like Buffalo Tom, too, there was just that sort of, like, alter- in America, it was alternative, yeah. you know, and it was kind of this almost bin of all different sort of genres of music, and you guys in particular had a, a real sort of, like, in a positive way, accessible rock sound, so, mm. the, I mean, how did you guys kind of, how did record labels approach that sound back then? Was it something that were, they were trying to morph or, or work with, or did you guys have some a lot of independence with Beggars? Oh, no, well, particularly since we were with Beggars, we were completely shielded from any of that. I mean, nobody ever came into, um, and this kind of informed making a change later on in the 90s, which we can kind of get to if you want, but during the time, we felt completely inured from that kind of thing. And, in fact, on Let Me Come Over, the third album, they were like, you know, we recorded that with Paul Coldery and Sean Slade, who are, to this day, great friends, and they were really great producers. But they were also like, well, they were learning, they were just guys that taught themselves. You know, they didn't come from, like, that whole New York school of engineers, Mm -hmm. like, tape op, work your way up, like John and Yellow kind of did. Yeah, yeah. 
Dave Bianco and John and Yellow, guys we worked with, kind of came up through that thing. But these were like guys that, you know, graduated Yale and formed their own band and they said, oh, let's start a studio with Gary Smith and Joe Harvard and blah, blah, blah. And it was, that was the fun of it, but they were also sort of learning as they went. And they eventually became in-demand mixing guys <laughs> themselves, like they did Hole and Radiohead. But that time they were sort of learning, let's go learn how to do the SSL that was the first sort of automated board, you know. Uh, and digital board and so we dumped everything into that blah 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 and it didn't sound that great so to beggar's credit they were like do you guys want to have somebody remix this uh, to, you know so one of these hot shot mixer guys Ron St. Germain mixed it and then so that was the kind of decision making process it was like okay let's try it as long as we can, can still say which mixes we want to use right. you know and uh, that was a whole process as well but right until right until our last record of the 90s we were we were so, but it was interesting. I mean, it was like you know, you know, uh, the fact that band that they, that anything quote unquote alternative, you know, wearing a flannel shirt or whatever was <laughs> that was the marketing thing, yeah. right? So that was yeah. If you weren't in spandex, you were alternative. Basically. Yeah, right. that was you know yeah. that was. Uh, but it was it is an interesting thing because like we were talking about with new wave, which was a catch all for anything yeah. that came after punk and wasn't punk. Yeah. Um, you know, alternative was kind of a catch all. There were so many different you know yeah. points in that and under that. Um, you know, sort of particular banner that, that are so different from one another. I mean, yeah. you know, it's like you guys and Lisa Loeb and, yeah. and you know, uh, yeah, you silver know, chair and, and, yeah. and uh, yeah. helmet. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that helmet gets cited a lot because they were... There was some crazy article recently about, uh, I don't know, it was in Pitchfork or something about all the bands that got these crazy advances and oh, oil trucks got like a million bucks. Yeah. They, didn't, they didn't really have a band. You well, know? they were like, and they were, you know, that, they were an interesting couple yeah. too because, I mean, they were like yeah. doing, you know, guess ads as models. Yeah. And completely strung out. So a million bucks didn't yeah. go as far back It then. was really interesting. I mean, you know, like people that we were grow that we had grown, come up with, and it seemed like, those years seemed like they were long, like, by the, but by the time like Janet Billig was the head of Atlantic, you know, or signing, you know, she was she had been she she was this person that we knew from God knows where from our manager, and she you know everybody was just sort of like anybody that had those assets. If you were working with Nirvana or Hole or whatever else, then our manager Tom Johnson was like was wooed to try to come to labels and be an A and R guy because he really was a great A and R person. You know, he, Tom Johnson sort of brought Come Out and. Um, and Betty Severe to America, and so Lemonheads he managed it early on. Well, that's yeah. one of the questions I wanted to ask you too, because you know, as a as a fan, I saw a lot of these uh, bands in in their club phase and and uh, watched them get bigger and and uh, have a broader audience. Was there um, was there a cooperative spirit among everybody who was in the Boston scene back then, or was it a little competitive, a little bit? Yeah, probably both. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it wasn't. I mean, it's not. It's not so much competitive, like in in a sports kind of way. It's more like at a certain point. Now let's talk about Boston. But at a certain point in the label thing, you know, we talk about like how we never felt like we'd get beyond a tour or a record. Like everything was sort of gravy. Each then you kept moving that goalpost down the field, and then to the point where in that post in that sort of mid '90s period, then we were looking at other bands and going, well. I mean, you know, better than Ezra have this one record. They come on to our label and they're selling. Blah blah. Why didn't you guys do that with us? Well, you know, he's better looking than you, or whatever. <laughs> whatever it was. Uh, but back then in Boston, it was. Um, I think there was sort of these. There was a. I felt like we got the the embittered side of things, like in uh, uh, by older school Boston bands and I don't want to the name kind of sell out type thing or, or like or, who are you like kind of talking about what you're talking about like, like you, you were guys lucky. came out of nowhere yeah, 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 or, yeah or like you know you get to sign to SST but uh, you're not as cool as you know right. Black Flag or Husker Du or Sonic like you, you know, didn't do the legwork yeah and then there was I, 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 and I don't know I mean I'm an insecure person in a lot of ways so especially back then I, I felt like those you know, like I always felt like Mike Watt would look down upon us from mm-hmm. SST, you know, but that was the, that was the SST changeover, yeah. you know, it was changing the from that punk rock thing to something a little bit weirder and in our realm very accessible, you know, we were way more accessible than the Minutemen or mm-hmm. who's, eventually Who's Gadoo became as, as accessible as where we took off, but... Um, but anyway, yeah, in Boston, uh, I mean, you know, I think of some bills that we played with. I know we played at least one bill with Galaxy 500, Bullet of the Volta, and Lemonheads at the Channel. 
Uh, and there were tons of bills like that that I don't remember necessarily. But uh, yeah, we went out on tour with the Blake Babies and Lemonheads all the time. And we were all really good buddies. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then later we became friends with like Peter Prescott and, and, and the guys that were in the bands that I really looked yeah. up to. But the Moving Targets and all those bands. But I'm, I don't know. I, I, there was, we, were, we would go away and people would ask us about the Boston scene. It's like, well, I didn't really know the Pixies well, that, that's you know, the until thing I came about, back later. It or, kind of coalesces in, in historical context more than it does when you're in real time. It's like, oh yeah, yeah. I, I cross paths with those people. But you know, now when we look back and it's very inconvenient. We were in our own sort of silos a lot yeah. of ways. You know? But I mean, the Fort Apache Christmas parties were sort of legendary. So you know, then you'd have Jay sitting in on drums with the Breeders or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, Or the Pixies, I guess it was back then. I can't remember. But um, so there were fun times like that, but for the most part, everybody was on their. They were out on the road. So. Yeah, well, it's almost like you know, if you're in a in a business, it's like the only people you don't know are the people that do the same thing as you. Yeah, they're the only people you don't work with. Right, 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 right. That's a good, it's a good point. And, you know, so but I we we developed as much of a relationship maybe with guys in like Betty Severe from Holland or like. UMI to some extent in Australia or because we would spend weeks with them as opposed to weeks with like the breeders or, yeah or, what were your favorite places to play other than other than locally I mean well I mean we had different reasons that they might be fun to play I mean going to London is, has always been great going to Belgium uh, and Holland is always great but it, you know the Belgian the Benelux countries audiences are way more sedate and then they come up to you and they, that was very that was very good was very <laughs> and the Germans would be a very you know, I did not so much like this record, or the show was not as good as your last one. You know, very blunt, you know. But then you go to Italy, and the people would be like, <laughs> just like coming up to me and hugging me. These guys kissing me and telling me about my, uh, they wanted to go touch my Marshall amplifiers. And I, wow, this guitar, this SG guitar, you know, real stereotypical passion. But the uh, audiences might be smaller, but more intense. And But I mean, all these places, I mean, it was just a, there was never a place that was a drag to tour, I mean, aside from, like, the south of the United States, you know? Yeah. But, uh, and then, so, the, uh, I mean, I wanted to talk to you, too, about, um, you know, the, the, what you're working on now. Um, obviously, uh, you, you've taken a, a couple of, uh, you've written a couple books, which are, yeah. which are fun, uh, really fun reads for anybody who would be interested in listening to this show is going to love... Um, you know, reading your 33 and a third on Exile Main Street or, you know, Rocks Off, which is uh, the um, 50 songs, a uh, history of, of the 50 um, Stone songs. Or yes, 50 years of the Stones Rolling Stones. through 50 songs. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. And um, I, I do have to say that uh, when I searched Rocks Off on Amazon to, uh, to buy the Kindle version <laughs> of the book, um, I was assaulted with... Uh, um, a wide Mar- selection, a, a wide selection of dildos and, and vibrators. So thank you for that as well. Um, but uh, so, but you've got a new record coming out with um, you know with the band and its in its original um, lineup. So what's what's going? You know, talk us through, walk us through how that came to be and and what. You know what it's like to make an album, given that uh, probably everybody is is working and 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 mm-hmm. how to tour now that uh, you're grown up with with uh, yeah. kids and responsibilities. Yeah, grown up kids. Yeah, and if if you don't mind, actually, sorry to to flip you back, but I know you know your last couple records of the '90s. Um, you know, Big Red Letter Day and Sleepy Eye. Those were fairly. You know, you had some success off of those. So, kind of maybe take us from that point, and then you know, sort of the. You've always played music. I mean, it seems like yeah. you guys have always gotten together, put out a record, toured a little bit. You've yes. got some solo stuff, but... So by the end of the 90s, so that last record was called Smitten. That came out like 97, 8, or it's 97, 98 or something. And by that time we said, okay, let's, let's, let's get out of this comfort blanket. We had, we've, we, had, we, we, had, we, had, we had finished our contract with Beggars. We said, let's try signing to, directly to a U.S. And I probably was the one that pushed most for that. And it was probably a mistake... But it was one that I don't necessarily regret. But part of it was like, I felt well, maybe we are, we've been too protected. Maybe we need to sign directly to. Maybe they need to feel more invested in us mm-hmm. in the U.S. And it was a time when everything was changing, and you know, radio had kind of briefly played amazing songs by all these different kinds of bands that we talked about, and even one hit. And then gone and back. And then gone back to like the lowest common denominator mm-hmm. version of that, which was like it became new metal, and everything was. 
you know, it was like the corporations were taking over radio, so these guys didn't, didn't they, they couldn't play their own songs anymore. Program directors were nationally. Obsolete. Yeah. So it was Clear Channel, and it was like, now all the label, major labels were being folded, and one of them was ours, which was Polydor, which was part of, like, the whole universal thing. And, and then we, we knew we were going to get, we knew we were going to get dropped uh, as soon as we signed, almost. And they're like, well, you can get this record out, or we can see what happens. And we felt like we were going to get dropped. So we kind of said, let's get the record out. It had no no promo. And we took a tour with the Goo Goo Dolls, who were, like, on their... They had just exploded big after, like, really kind of paying their dues for many years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it just was an unrewarding thing. My kid was coming. Uh, my wife was about to give birth. Tom already had two kids. Chris was getting settled, settling down. So it just was the time to stop, and it was like we we had been on that tour record cycle for 10 years, and we were just getting off of it. So, uh, I mean, at that point, we were like, I don't think we'll ever do another record, I, but, you know, there's no need to break up. And But we kept doing stuff. I mean, we did a an A-size record, a B-size record, and we would go do dates, and we had even a kind of a top 10 hit in the in the U.K. with a cover of, my, of Going Underground by The Jam, mm-hmm. which was put out by the Oasis guys, so it kind of had this push. Blah, blah, blah. But for the most part, you know, then 07, we said... Well, we're still playing, but we, do we want to be a nostalgia act anymore? Let's let's put let's do let's, I mean, still you know let's, let's put some music out. Let's see if we can. I mean, I was still writing songs. I was still doing side projects. I'm kind of glossing over all that stuff. And but yeah, we kind of wanted to do it, and we and we ended up doing that. And that was one model, which was, I mean, that was three easy pieces. So that was actually through uh, that was a fifth. That was the first deal that we did as a fifty fifty deal with Danny Goldberg's label. Danny Goldberg had. Mm-hmm. Had you know been managed Nirvana and was the head of Atlanta for a while, and so that was cool. Uh, but then we a few years go by and we did this our own records, Scrawny Records, uh, for um, Skins, and that was through the Orchard, which was kind of like an a la carte company. Which so everybody was still figuring this stuff out in the mid two thousands. Like, how does this change now? The internet's changed a lot, and. You know. Importance of labels is yeah. Exciting. So now we are basically hiring somebody to partner us, or paying them a percentage to kind of promote the record or do different things. You know, now geotagging and emails were starting to happen, and all that kind of stuff. And now we're fully into that. So now we're our own label again, but we're partnering with uh, Stephen Judge from uh, School Kids Records. Um, um, and yeah, I mean, it, uh, you know, it depends what you want to talk about, but it's really interesting to me because I'm getting. 50 emails a day from like these digital marketing guys that we're working with that are contracted. It's like, well, you need to do an ad for Pandora. You need to do this. You need yeah. to do that. And it's like, I can't, I can't do it all. And I'm not <laughs> sure if our fans even care. You know, right? <laughs> but it's like awareness is a big part of it. Yeah. It's like if you're a 50-year-old guy, yeah. yeah, and you're not paying attention and you only go out to like a show every two months or something like right. that, which is a lot for a 50-year-old guy. You know, <laughs> Most of the 50-year-old people I know. They're not really paying attention, you know. But if Song Kit comes through and says, "Hey, this band is playing in your town. Come on out. It's a Thursday night. They're playing two sets," you know, and then that's kind of where we're at now. I'm not sure if I answered your question. Right. No, I mean it's, it's actually <laughs> really interesting. We talk about it a lot, just the democratization of yeah. music, and, and you know, so it's interesting to hear, you know, having come through the the traditional sort of label world, yeah. you guys kind of never hanging it up, but still playing. I mean, it is, you know, we, Wyndham and I, luckily, have heard the, the new album. Thank you for sending it over. It's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I was going to ask, like, how do you go about, I mean, are you promoting that? Are you, do you have, you know, is it through sort of Spotify? Is it through, you know, all these different channels? Yeah, it's a good question. You? I mean, we're, we're actually in that now. I mean, these are okay. emails that are flying around today. So Spotify, I'm a, I'm a fan. I mean, I, 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 I struggle with the economics of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's fair. But, I mean, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about it from younger bands. I thought we were getting tons of record royalties or something. We weren't. We would get a modest advance. In our case, we, we never took huge advances. We never not, never really offered huge advances. We were offered very relatively modest advances. Now they would look like they were huge advances. I mean, to go out to L.A. and record for eight weeks was a huge amount of money, but we spent it on making the record and mixing it. And by the way, one video back then would blow away yeah, right, the whole recording right, budget. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, you had to do it, right? You had, you had to. Video, I mean, yeah. you had, if you did, if you wanted to sort of play an expensive one. Yeah, yeah it was a hundred grand to make a video back then. You know, uh, it's it's obscene, but yeah, now it's like, um, what do you do for Spotify? I think Spotify. Uh, anyway, I think I think bands think that they're not getting paid. So it's all about what kind of deals you make with your label or. Getting like I, I know a high school kid by the way who's 
who does EMD music, who's getting like checks for sixteen hundred dollars a month from, yeah. from from Spotify. You know, you just got to know how to do it, which we're trying to figure out. I mean, there's they've got their they've got a headquarters here, not their headquarters, the headquarters, but a, a, an office here in Somerville. They took over um, uh, the data crunching company Echo Nest, I think it's called, and I knew these guys that worked for them or started that company. So, but it's geared towards a different. I think it's geared towards a younger demographic, which is most things are geared towards. So how do we both capitalize on it? You know, I think we're talking about, you know, this is the first record where we've actually purposefully recorded a cover for the record. Like Mm -hmm. in the past, we'd have bonus tracks or whatever. But now we recorded uh, Only Living Boy in New York for the record. And, you know, like this is internal discussion. It's like, well, do we push that? Because these cover things end up on these Discover yeah. Weekly lists a lot, yeah. or radar. It's a very good radar. cover, by the way. Too. Thank I, you. I like Thanks. it a lot. Thanks. I mean, yeah, we, we played that in the late 90s um, when we were trying to figure out what, you know, sort of what to do for that, that last record of the 90s, Smitten. But, um, so, yeah, we're talking about that. We're, t- and so we're, going, we're doing tour dates, but we can't, our time is extremely right. limited. So to How do you question, manage that? I mean, is it just... It's a constant struggle. So it's like, I, I've got flexibility. You know, I've, I, right. I, I, I work... I, kind of purposefully took a day job that in real estate that I can kind of make my own hours but I mean at the end of the day I've got responsibilities and if I'm I'm responsible to my partner and if he's not if I can if I just throw it all on him you know back then back when I started in real estate it was like I didn't have that many clients so it's right. like you know I can kind of just have somebody cover for me now it's a business an ongoing business so but it's once every four or five years at this point that I really need to do it he's totally cool with it so but Tom works for the government, really. So he's he's working. He's got very limited amount of time off. So we've got to choose our spots really carefully. So every time we post a tour date, it's like you get like mushrooms, like fifty mm-hmm. comments of like, "Please come to Fort Worth." I'm like, "Never coming to Fort Worth." <laughs> you know, I'm not. It's just not going to happen. We're very lucky if we can get to the cities that we know we're going to pull in people, like Chicago, Minneapolis, San Francisco. Yeah. So we're going out to the West Coast this week. Doing Seattle, LA, San Francisco. We're going to Europe over the summer. We're going to Europe in the fall, um, and we hope to get more. We'll, we know we'll play like DC festivals, things we can get away in the weekend. We're playing Boston. New York and all. You're doing Boston Calling again? No, no, we're doing uh, the Paradise in April. Oh, nice. Um, but yeah, we've got offered this really great festival. And when is this going to go on? I we'll probably put it out this week. I okay, yeah. On March second, we're announcing that we're playing. Um, so it can't go out before that. But it's, we're playing the Cactus Festival in Bruges. In Belgium, which is we've played already twice, and I've played solo uh, in addition to the twice, and it's just an amazing spot in the city park. Um, so we're doing that, and um, yeah, I mean, I'm you know we're trying to do as much promo as possible. Yeah. Where I'm, I'm 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 on Marin's podcast coming up this week, and oh, uh, so stuff like that, trying to get to the people that might yeah. want to hear about yeah. us. You know? No, I think it's uh, it's a very interesting you know uh, story to tell at this point because it's, yeah. it you know really has you've run the the entire uh, length of, of the sort of you know uh, what is the recording industry I mean the, the sort mm. of traditional to now the the, the know, thing that everybody's trying to sort of piece together how to figure how to it out now. make a living yeah, yeah same guys don't like each other and <laughs> yeah well, I heard you guys talk about the super chunk record it's a, yeah. it's a similar thing it's, I mean they they're that's really cool because Mac and Laura have the label yep. um, but John has to I mean I don't know if he has to I think he loves to but he's he's constantly on the road with different bands yeah. you know. Jim, I don't know. I don't know what Jim's doing. Well, <laughs> you know, he lives in the, Asheville. Into the other end of the spectrum, we, you know, we've uh, had Charles Bissell from the Wrens on uh-huh. um, a little while ago, and you know, they're two of those guys are basically VPs at you know pharma companies. Oh yeah, and, uh, yeah. they literally they, play weekends. They, they, can, they you know, sometimes can play weekends, and, and yeah. it just becomes a very different thing. One of them lives in Singapore right now. Oh wow. Um, so it's you know they're you know the opposite end of the spectrum. They are uh, you know they put out an album once every fourteen years as well. Which yeah. Um, but it, it, they're and there's a lot of trust funds in this business too. I gotta <laughs> say, I think you know, and I, I think a lot of people have been able to kind of I don't know how many, but I think a lot of I, I wonder how. I wonder how, like, some of our peers still m- make a living at it. But, I mean, certain bands, like, if they reunite, like, whatever, Pavement or, or Breeders, it's millions, yeah. probably, yeah. for Breeders. Yeah. They and, just uh, did a, I mean, they, the New York Times this weekend had a, had a massive spread on the Breeders. I don't know yeah, if they yeah, saw that. Yeah, I started to read it. I haven't, I haven't finished it yet. Yeah. Well, I think with Buffalo Tom, and I'm sure you guys find this, but, you know, I had the pleasure of seeing you guys last year at, at Boston Calling, and, uh, you know, there's a... Pretty built-in fan base, I'm sure, yeah. in these major cities that you guys have, and, yeah. and you know. So, and I'm assuming the new music is 
carrying that on and reaching some new audiences as well. Yeah, we always just hope to cover that core audience. Yeah. If we can grow it in any way, mm-hmm. excellent. But I mean, we just want to make sure everybody's aware of it. So like, you know, we got a lead-off review in Mojo. That is That's right in the wheelhouse of our, of our yeah. audience, you know. So good review picture, blah, 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 and that's, you know, they, that's when I hear from guys, oh, I, you have a new record. I'm like, yeah, I've been, pl- I've been pledged music for, you know, the last yeah. two years. Like, you've just been ignoring it, and I don't blame you. you know? <laughs> I ignore, like, 90% of them that come across my you email in, well. You stayed engaged, too. I mean, it doesn't sound like Buffalo Tom ever split up, per se, but you had a bunch of side projects, and also yeah. wanted to ask about the sort of philanthropic things that you've done, because there's been multiple... Uh, instances of you, I mean, you're involved in the Hot Stove Cool Music thing, which is mm-hmm. a, a local Boston um, thing that, that uh, operates with, uh, started off as being uh, sort of part with, of the Red Sox Yeah, it was Peter Gammons, started it on Theo. his own, yeah, with, um, well, Theo came in a little later, because Theo wasn't even in town when it first started, so it was Peter Gammons' benefit, yeah, then it became a, it was like a, it was like basically a Jimmy Fund, but now it's its own foundation, it's Theo and Paul Epstein's right. foundation to be named later, yeah. That's a, that's a really cool, and it looks like everybody has a great time when you do it. Yeah, year. that's a great one. I've, I've taken one or two off in the last couple of years. So last year we had Eddie Vedder show up, yeah. and it was kind of a big deal. Yeah, that was a big video, the one uh, viral. <laughs> he was yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was cool. It was fun. Uh, but yeah, and, and for this these West Coast dates, and probably for, actually for the West Coast, U.S., um, New York, and Boston, we're bringing Moms Demand Action um, for common sense on on gun control as well, oh, gun, okay. common gun sense, whatever it's called, but they're part of every town uh, for gun safety, and that seems to be a uh, very needed, timely kind of thing. Where, but it's it's such an easy thing to be able to do music uh, as something you love, and just say, just carve out space for either benefit and you know people will play for free because they love to play, and if it's right. supporting a charity, yeah, then it makes it so much. Yeah, but you date all the way back to the sort of Red Hot stuff, didn't it? Yeah, the Red Hot stuff we did. I mean, we've always done benefits and benefit records. I mean, there was the Sweet Relief uh, record. I mean, that that stuff is so easy to do. Uh, it's, it's easier than even cutting a check, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's it's just doing stuff you're already doing. So if you can kind of draw attention to certain causes uh, or donate money, uh, raise money for it, then all the better. Yeah, so in the new album, is is that... Ben, is, that's not out yet, correct? No, it's coming out released this week. The right? second, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So that's fantastic. Yeah. And, and listen to it, like it a lot. It's a, oh, thank you very much. Really, really. The name good. Quiet and Peace. Yeah. Have <laughs> we mentioned that yet? Yeah, <laughs> Quiet and Peace yeah. is the name of the album. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it'll be out Thursday the second. I think is it third Thursday yeah. the second. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. That's that's kind of hard to figure out what time of year. Like I. I it's uh, it's easier now that I'm back in Boston for a little bit yeah. than it was in L.A. My my cousin always says that in L.A. Uh, she knows what time we, what time of the year it is by going into the Rite Aid and seeing which uh, greeting cards are out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah. But um, anyway, I think that's we'll probably wrap it up with that then. So I appreciate you having us in. Yeah, and thanks so us. much. Thanks yeah, for coming. Really enjoyed talking to you. So I, I appreciate so being on. Love the new album. We'll be uh, plugging it on the pod. All right. Thanks. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.